0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen.
1: Encountering the Black Madonnas felt a little bit to me like what it must be for a white man to go into a Marvel movie and see himself as a superhero and then come out just, yeah, I can do this. I belong here. I have the power. Seeing these Black Madonnas felt like encountering a Black female superhero.
0: Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash not radio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash not seen radio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Dr. Christina Cleveland. She's a social psychologist, public theologian, author, and activist. She's the founder and director of the Center for Justice and Renewal, as well as its sister organization, Sacred Folk, which creates resources to stimulate people's spiritual imaginations and support their journeys towards liberation. An award-winning researcher and former professor at Duke University's Divinity School, Dr. Cleveland's work has appeared in magazines ranging from Essence to Christianity Today. She lives in Boston, Massachusetts. Today, we're discussing her recent book, God is a Black." Dr. Christina Cleveland, welcome to Things Not Seen.
1: Thank you. It's an honor to be here.
0: I want to start our conversation in a bit of an odd place. You are traveling in Europe and you're making a trip to Vichy, France. And you're there for a very specific purpose. But if I am remembering correctly from the book, you're also under the weather at the moment. You've got some illness going on. And that illness kind of ties into the greater story of what you're doing there. But if you would, take us back to that trip to Vichy, France, what you had hoped to be doing there, what your illness had to do with you being there, and how this all kind of wrapped together. So start us there.
1: Yeah, yeah. So... I was in VC because I wanted to see the famous black Madonna who lives there. And black Madonnas are the part of a black, uncommon version of the Virgin Mary. And they're they look like me. They're black and they're female. And I was desperate to meet this black Madonna who looked like she could be my biological mother. However, this particular black Madonna is called Our Lady of the Sick. And that particular day, I was physically sick. I had on my walking pilgrimage made a few miscalculations in terms of what sort of gear I needed to be um, wearing because I'm not outdoorsy. I'm actually quite indoorsy. So the fact that I was even on this walking pilgrimage was a bit of, I think, divine humor working itself out in my life. But I was sick because I hadn't layered correctly. And... I was starting to shame myself for being sick. Classic sort of white patriarchal move, blame the victim. Christina, you should not have gotten sick. How dare you be a novice at this pilgrimage thing? How dare you make a miscalculation that's going to impact your journey? And as I looked deeper at that shame, I realized it was a shame that goes to the root, the kind of the core of who I was. Why was I struggling To love myself as a Black woman? Why was I struggling to get free from society's confines around Black women? And so part of my desperation to see Our Lady of the Sick was because I was bringing my my human need to her, but also my deeper spiritual need that I needed to be made whole as a Black woman.
0: You mentioned about these Black Madonnas, that they looked like you. And I'm really struck by that in in particular with this story of your trip to Vichy because she not only looked like you but she acknowledged I mean in the informal title that you've just given her our lady of the sick she was acknowledging not just your appearance but your entire being she was saying to you and this is a theme that plays again and again in your book God is a black woman this madonna was saying to you I accept you in your vulnerability I accept you in your weakness and I mean, throughout this conversation, I want to explore that, but maybe as a way of setting the stage, why is that such an anomalous thing in the Christian <laughs> tradition to have a yeah. kind of religious experience of saying, I accept you and your vulnerability?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. You know, um, her official title is Our Lady of the Sick, but I nicknamed her She Who Cherishes Our Hot Mess, because... I was so transformed by how she shows up in the world. I mean, as a Christian and as a Christian who's been formed in theological spaces and knows that there's a performance to being Christian in a lot of in a lot of ways. I never felt comfortable truly expressing my needs. And I think this comes down from really white patriarchal notions of needs are disgusting. Humanity is disgusting. Imperfection is disgusting. Imperfection is a threat. And so to encounter a divine image who not only said here I am here for the sick I am our lady of the sick but also has a long history of a, a several hundred year history of especially welcoming the most unpresentable in society the people who violate our purity rules the spoken and unspoken ones and to come to her and realize that it's my mess that's my greatest offering to her. It's my need. That's my greatest offering to her. And I could bring her small needs. Hey, I got the sniffles and it doesn't feel good. And big needs. Like I am completely broken down by this white patriarchal society that I vowed would never get to me. And here I am. Piece me back together.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Dr. Christina Cleveland. She's a social psychologist, public theologian, author, and activist, and is the founder and director of the Center for Justice and Renewal, as well as its sister organization, Sacred Folk. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Out from Harper One, God is a Black Woman. Well, you just used a word, healing, that is both central to the journey that you're taking in and that you recount in your book, God is a Black Woman, but also that both this Black Madonna, the the Madonna of the sick, but also other Black Madonnas that you encounter in your journey are offering to communities through the ages. And you mentioned that there's more than 400 of these Black Madonnas. So maybe we should take a moment and make sure that our listeners understand what we're meaning by that term and what some of the history is there. So tell us a little bit about these Black Madonnas.
1: Absolutely. So the Black Madonna is, is an uncommon Virgin Mary. There are probably millions of Virgin Marys around the world, and there are only about 400, 450 Black Madonnas. And so, but they're dark skin. Many of them are connected to the earth. And all of them are officially anointed the Black Madonna term because they are associated with miracles that have been documented by the Catholic Church. And so the earliest one that I know of is about 1,900 years old. So they're quite old. They go back to basically the start of Christianity. However, many of the Black Madonnas around the world are in Catholic churches or chapels that are built on top of existing pagan sites that were created to worship the goddess. So Isis or Sybil or Black Artemis. So they're really like sort of Catholic. The Catholic Church kind of claims them sometimes. But the people who have worshipped them often have also worshipped ancient goddesses that then they, when the Catholic Church came and essentially colonized the space, they just took on the role of worshipping the Black Madonna instead of ISIS or something like that. So they're, but they are all over the world. They're in Latin America. They're in the continent of Africa. There are a lot of them in Europe. There are a couple in the United States. So they really are everywhere. There are some in Asia
0: as well. Readers who come to your book, God is a Black Woman, will realize pretty quickly that when we're talking about these Black Madonnas, they are in many ways political figures. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that, because there's a politics of space. There's a politics of identity. There's a politics of belonging that is sort of located in each of these Black Madonnas. You, You mentioned a moment ago that there's this, a connection between Catholic worship and paganism that oftentimes is there in the areas where Black Madonnas are present. In your book, God is a Black Woman, you even talk about one particular missionary who comes in, sees pagan worship, literally raises the the pagan temple to the ground and builds a church on top of it. And you say, this is a kind of Christian gentrification. And so I, I, I as I'm listening to you Speaking about this, and as I read in your book, one of the things that kept coming to my mind was the Catholic Synod on the Amazon that happened a few years back. And there was a statue that the Amazonians brought, which was the Madonna of the Amazon, was one name that was given to it. But there was also a characterization of it as a Pachamama, which in some understandings was a kind of pagan goddess. And there was a white man who literally took the statue and threw it in the Tiber River to to cleanse the Catholic space. Of this. And so I'm interested in how Black Madonnas exist both within acceptable space and challenge acceptable space. So you're talking about this quasi acceptance. Help us to understand how these fit in the liturgy and, and the space of the church.
1: Yeah, I mean, they're quite rogue. I think I used that term in the book. They're quite rogue. And I think in my research and in my conversations, the average Catholic doesn't really know about them or know much about them. So institutionally, they're not central at all. They're very marginal. But in terms of the community, in terms of the people, the people love the Black Madonna. The church maybe doesn't love the Black Madonna, but the people do. And every single time a priest or a bishop or even sometimes the pope has tried to get rid of a particular Black Madonna because so many pilgrims were coming her, she was becoming powerful, politically powerful, right? And so we're really galvanizing the people. The people would revolt and say, we are going to have our Black... So a great example of this is in the late medieval stages, people were drawn to the Black Madonna and we were putting Black Madonnas in all the churches. And that was it, was, it was the height of sort of Marian worship around the world, but particularly Black Madonnas. And the Catholic Church was like, you can't do this, this is idolatry. This is before they had decided that it's okay to have images. And so then, but the people just kept insisting. And so then the church said, okay, fine. If you put a relic in them, then technically they're not a statue, they're a reliquary. <laughs> And so that's how we're going to get around this fact that we don't want this statue in the church, but okay, fine, it's the toenail of St. So-and-so that's inside her, it, in the cavity of this Black Madonna. So therefore, it's not really a Black Madonna, it's something to hold this relic. And so there's, you see this throughout the history of the Catholic Church, where they're sort of making exceptions, or a bishop, is just as a concession. okay, fine, I'll let you keep your Black Madonna, because clearly this seems to be important to you. And even during the French Revolution, many Black Madonnas, like many Catholic churches, were stolen or, you know, destroyed because the Catholic Church was what a lot of the re- the revolution was often against the Catholic Church, but the people would hunt down the Black Madonnas and, and rescue them. And so even though they're like, we're fine with you tearing down this church, but we're going to go save our Black Madonna. So, yeah, it is this very, it's a very subversive power that's that hasn't quite been institutionalized.
0: There's a wonderful example of this towards the end of your book, God is a Black Woman, where you are visiting a church and it takes you some time to get to this little village. And as you're there, you encounter someone and you say, I'm, I'm here to see the Black Madonna. And I apologize. I forget the the title of this particular Black Madonna. But this person with tears in her eyes tells you the story of how it was lost. It was stolen. And the entire village pooled their funds to get them back. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure, sure. Yeah. And I'm going to butcher the name of the city because I actually don't speak French. I decided to go on a 400-mile walking pilgrimage across central France, but I don't speak any French. So a little adventurous here. But uh, in my American pronunciation, I call it saint germes And yeah, this particular village has a, a quite a remarkable Black Madonna. She's in the Romanesque style, which is just as a piece of art, very valuable. And she was stolen. And she was stolen for about 17, I mean, she was missing for about 17 years. And this is a village of, gosh, maybe 600 residents and rural, n- not wealthy, you know, like it's not one of these tony villages. <laughs> it's, it's hardworking farm people. And eventually she turned up at Oxton in Madrid and a random expert said, I'm pretty sure that's the black doctor you see. And, re- and, and then at that point, the village had to buy her back for, for quite a bit of money um, because she had changed hands about six times. So it, it, at this point, you just have to buy her back. And so there is this devotion that you see when you, vil- when you visit these villages. And if, if I just show up and say, I'm here to see the Noir, you know, the Black Virgin in French, it's amazing the people who just. Death- I cannot believe you came this far to see our Virgin. And usually there's two types of people who seem to be very excited about this. It's an older kind of, the elders, maybe baby boomers and higher, who grew up in the Catholic Church and have a really strong sort of earthy devotion to to the Black Madonna, to their particular one in their village. And then you see kind of younger millennial and Gen Zers who are pretty witchy who have found a connection to the Black Madonna. And so not necessarily church or Catholic, but certainly love to draw on the powers of the Black Madonna. So yes, you get these two groups that are just very devoted.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today to Dr. Christina Cleveland. She's a social psychologist, public theologian, author, and activist. She's the founder and director of the Center for Justice and Renewal, as well as its sister organization, Sacred Folk, which creates resources to stimulate people's spiritual imaginations and support their journeys towards liberation. Today, we're talking about her recent book, God is a Black Woman. We'll be back in just a moment. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Dr. Christina Cleveland. She's a social psychologist, public theologian, author, and activist. She's the founder and director of the Center for Justice and Renewal, as well as its sister organization, Sacred Folk. Today we're talking about her recent book, Out from Harper One God is a Black Woman. We touched on this in the earlier part of our conversation, but I I want to reframe the focus of what we're talking about away from Black Madonnas, although they will certainly come back into the conversation, and more towards you as the central figure of this story going through the book, God is a Black Woman. You used the word at a couple points, the word healing. And this is really a story of healing, not only for yourself, but also it's an invitation to healing to your readers. But as a way of setting that stage, help my listeners understand what it is that you and your readers might need to be healing from.
1: Yeah. You know, the journey that led to God as a Black woman was really a journey of healing myself. Growing up in white, patriarchal, religious America really did a number on my little Black girl embodied soul that I learned from a very early age, even though I spent a lot of time in Black church spaces, but I learned just as a little girl that what is sacred in our society is often defined by who we worship. And here in the United States, everywhere you go, you see a white male God, whether that's explicit, like white Jesus in a church or white Jesus in a museum painting, or implicit, like looking at the dollar bill and seeing In God We Trust, right next to George Washington, a white slaveholding male. And so just throughout our entire society, we're given messages that what is sacred is whiteness and maleness, and what is profane is everything that's the opposite of that. And as a Black woman, the intersection of my body is often seen as profane. And I use the example in the book about how Black women who are dealing with capitalism, sexism, and racism, who dare say, I need help, are automatically called welfare queens. And so just saying, I I have a need, I'm showing up as a human in this space, is seen as as profane, as disgusting in our society. So I was awakening to this. A lot of it in the wake of Black Lives Matter and seeing how profane Blackness is in the United States. And then also the Me Too movement and President Trump getting elected, seeing how profane femaleness is (laughs) in our culture. And I just was desperate for images of a divine. As someone who's been formed in faith communities, I was desperate for images of the divine that looked like me as a black woman related to my blackness and spoke truth about my femaleness. And so even though I'm a black woman and this is my story, I think that we all need to heal from white male God. We all need to heal from the ways in which we've been taught that what is holy is this very particular embodied, experience that really is a figment of our imagination, because no one's perfect, no one is completely needless, no one is completely individualistic, and just all of the things that white patriarchy values.
0: One of the things that you say in your book, God is a Black Woman, is you talk about the kind of hierarchies that white patriarchy creates. And you say, if we look analytically at this hierarchy, there's whiteness and maleness at the top, white femaleness below that. Black maleness is perhaps below that. And then you say at the very bottom of all of these layers is black womanhood, black femaleness. And what you then say is so if we look to that as a source of liberation, if we look to that and liberating that experience, what happens is that everything else begins to become liberatory as a part of that. And so When I was reading that, and at many points in your book, my sort of first emphasis was thinking about Matthew 25. And Jesus saying, I'm going to show up, I'm going to show up in the sick, I'm going to show up in the imprisoned, I'm going to show up in all the people that you are saying that you don't want. And so as I'm making that kind of parallel, this I'm not the first person, James Cone certainly made that long before I did, that connection with Matthew 25 and black liberation. But as we talk about this as a liberative exercise, help my listeners to understand why it's so important to focus on black femininity in this, not just politically, but theologically.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, one reason why is to help the historical Jesus come back into conversation with the American Jesus. <laughs> I mean, if only the American Jesus had anything to do with Matthew 25. (laughs) And so I think part of the problem of the way that we understand Jesus and Jesus' social location here in the United States is that right now he's so far from Black femininity. And Black femininity, theologically, if it were re-centered, this is actually where the divine is doing things, making miracles, speaking, being present. In and through Black femininity, then we'll get a lot closer to what the historical Jesus was actually talking about. And so, I think it's important for us to see the sacredness of Black women for sort of a sociological reason, like this: Hey, this is the antidote to white patriarchy. But then, for a theological reason, I know it's been freeing for me to start to see myself and other Black women as divine, because then it opens up space for me to see all people as divine. For so, the people who are the most profane in society are made sacred, then we can actually start to see everything in society as sacred, and it, heals, it, it has the potential to heal us all.
0: So I really like this distinction between the historical Jesus and the American Jesus. And as you're making these moves in your book, God is a Black Woman, and you're refocusing again and again on Black femininity as a source of divine image— We've talked about, and you use the phrase, the sacred is defined by who we worship, and we we can talk about all the subtle and Nonverbal and non-overt ways, that power structure is maintained. But there are also moments that you reference in your book where there it, it's explicitly named. A white man will come up to you after a lecture and say, does it bother you that God is a white man? Or you talk about teaching at Duke Divinity School and there's a trio of bros that sit in the front row and who are just determined to talk over you and to sort of spout Bible verses at you because they are convinced that you should not even be in that space teaching. And so let's talk for a moment so my listeners get this clear about the overt power that is used to keep this white male God in place.
1: Absolutely. I think I can give another example from Duke Divinity School. I remember my first semester there naively challenging a colleague's syllabus, because we were looking over syllabi and deciding to approve new courses. And this, this colleague was teaching a class on preaching the psalms, And every single one of his sources on the syllabus were books written by white men. And so I just raised my hand naively thinking that, hey, everyone else is going to see that this is a problem. And of course I got shot down so quickly and basically put back in my place. Well, you, just, if, if you were, an, if you were actually a biblical scholar, you'd understand that this, these are the most legitimate. So, you know, again, like using expertise, using knowledge to whip someone back into shape. And so there are these ways in which what's most valuable is seen as what's in white male, white maleness, and that is protected. And if you challenge that, then you're going to either get students challenging you or you're going to get colleagues challenging you and putting you back in your place. And there were plenty of times when, especially when I was speaking much more in the Orthodox Christian world, (laughs) where I would say, hey, as a woman, I'm taking issue with the fact that I'm the only female speaker on this panel or something like that. And then again, it's like, well, you should just be thankful that we're even giving you a voice. So that putting you back in your place. And so this hierarchy is very explicitly protected. It's also implicitly protected, but you're right. There are some like explicit ways in which people use scripture or people use your lack of knowledge, which is interesting to to even use lack of supposed knowledge with a woman, because then you're basically saying, oh, see, you're just like Eve. You're easily deceived. You just don't really know what you're talking about. (laughs) If only you were more pure, you would get it. So you do see that a lot. If you're just
0: joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Christina Cleveland. She's a social psychologist, public theologian, author, and activist. She's the founder and director of the Center for Justice and Renewal, as well as its sister organization, Sacred Folk. Today, we're talking about her recent book, God is a Black Woman. One of the things that you say early on in God is a Black Woman In light of what we've just been talking about, these kind of overt and covert power structures that keep the white male god central in discourse, you just name it. You say when we look at a black Madonna, a black Madonna is not concerned with orthodoxy. And I'm paraphrasing here, but a a black Madonna instead is concerned with black female experience as a legitimate source of theologizing. Now, I'd love to expand on that and have my listeners understand, particularly some listeners who maybe think that it's important to have all of your T's crossed and your I's dotted theologically in order to make God happy with you. Talk to us about the power of centering Black female experience as a theological locus.
1: Yeah, I'm not the first to come up with this idea, though. This is what womanism is. Womanism is theology done from the center by centering Black women's experience. And so, you know, is it good news? Well, how we determine whether it's good news or not is not based on, oh, I just read Carl Bart and according to Karl Bart, this is good news. Or I just read, you know, obviously you can find more more progressive thinkers. Oh, according to Miroslav Volf, this is good news. Womenists say, Yeah, sure, we might read those folks. We care about theology as it's being done in the world. <laughs> But what is good news is what feels good in Black women's bodies on the ground, and so womanist theology is really interested in what's happening on the ground outside of the ivory tower—that the practical application of this in Black women's lives. And so, if it's not good news in Black women's lives, particularly the Black women that wouldn't even have access to the ivory tower, so not even my particular experience as a Black woman who has some privilege and access, but really the folks that are living in the world and don't have access to these spaces. And so I'm just stepping into that lineage and that lineage actually goes back to even our enslaved ancestors who were like, yeah, you keep telling us about this plantation Christ. And some of it is interesting and some of it's life-giving, most of it's not, but we're going to take that, we're going to mix it with our ancestral religions and we're going to make magic with that. And what feels good to us, what feels liberating to us, what I need to believe in order to keep going with hope and love today is what I'm going to carry with me as theology. And so I, I feel like my exploration into the Black Madonna is just continuing in that lineage where I can say my interaction with this Black Madonna is what's going to form my theology about her. Although I will read the history and I will do some of these other things too.
0: You mentioned a moment ago that in these overt and covert structures of recentering white male godness in the theological conversation, that this happens both in our theology but also in our readings of Scripture, and there was a very clear example of that when you visit one of these Black Madonnas, it had a Latin phrase connected to it, which, if I recall, was a mistranslation of the Song of Songs, and if you could walk my listeners through that, how was it mistranslated, and what's the better translation?
1: Sure, sure. So, that, so the Black Madonna of Mund, who's called Our Lady of the Fountain, sits out in a courtyard and is a fountain. You know, there's a spout coming out of her loins. Above her is a banner, like a, a Renaissance era banner that had been painted almost like a fresco. And it said, it was the Latin, but the, the translation was, I am Black, but I am beautiful from the Song of Song. And that actually is a deliberate mistranslation of the actual text which is I am black and I am beautiful. But in order to justify the subjugation of black folks during the transatlantic slave trade, Bible translators started intentionally mistranslating it to separate blackness from beauty. And so this particular black Madonna had the mistranslation painted above her and, and it has been painted. She's probably about 600 years old at this point. So she's one of the younger black Madonnas, you know, for 600 years. She's had this, I mean, it's a swear. You know what I mean? It's a defamation painted over her. And if you look at her particular body, I mean, part of it is she's outdoors in the elements, but she's by far the most battered looking of all the Black Madonnas that I visited on that particular pilgrimage, which was 18, even though she's one of the youngest. And so seeing that banner over her head and then looking at her battered body Really, just right away, I connected it to Black Lives Matter. I mean, her body looks and calls into question, do Black lives really matter? When you see this body that I could, I mean, I started to cry when I saw her because her body looks like my body often feels as a Black woman, just beat down by white patriarchy. And but it was transformational to see her stance and her eyes and how firm they were And how daring her eyes were kind of like, yeah, I don't know about that banner. And I don't believe it. I'm speaking a new truth to you. And so it's really powerful to encounter this empowering image of the divine that says, society may say these things. The Bible translators may say these things. The theologians may say these things. But your interaction with me can supersede that.
0: So I I see a through line between that black Madonna who is staring sort of up at the mistranslation above her saying, I am black, but I am beautiful, when really the text says I am black and I am beautiful. I see a through line with that to Thomas Jefferson. And you talk about Jefferson. Jefferson, in our own founding of America, penned the words, supposedly, all men are created equal. But you point out he also penned the words, and I'm paraphrasing again here, but whiteness is clearly superior because it's more beautiful. It's more intelligent. It's more it's all these superior things to blackness. So there's this intent, a through line of intent to rewrite black experience into something where it's a narrative of inferiority and a narrative of suffering. Now, when I make that connection, am I going too far or would you take it more more fully and more far?
1: Oh, no, I completely agree. I think that as a Black woman, I've labored under that same banner my whole life, even though it hasn't physically existed. It has ideologically existed in every single space I've been in in America. I am Black but I am beautiful, you know, like this sort of separation between Blackness and beauty and Blackness and worthiness and black, Blackness and sanctity. And so it was, yeah, it was incredibly powerful. I mean, I started crying when I saw this Black Madonna because I felt seen by her. Oh, you get it. You get it. Thomas Jefferson was running amok in your life too, <laughs> you know, to be asynchronistic. But I think it's just so important for us to connect with an image of God that actually gets it, that can relate to our embodied experiences. And sure, the Thomas Jefferson, right around when he was writing the Declaration of Independence, was writing this super racist book about how whiteness is better than blackness. And to encounter a, a black Madonna that has labored under that too, and yet still stands firm, head high, eyes piercing. She really just says, we get to redefine who we are. We have the power to redefine who we are.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Dr. Christina Cleveland. She's a social psychologist, public theologian, author, and activist. She's the founder and director of the Center for Justice and Renewal, as well as its sister organization, Sacred Folk, which creates resources to stimulate people's spiritual imaginations and support their journeys towards liberation. She's an award-winning researcher and former professor at Duke University's Divinity School. Her work has appeared in magazines ranging from Essence to Christianity Today she lives in Boston, Massachusetts. Today, we're discussing her recent book, God is a Black Woman, out recently from Harper One. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture, and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Dr. Christina Cleveland. She's a social psychologist, public theologian, author, and activist. She's the founder and director of the Center for Justice and Renewal, as well as its sister organization, Sacred Folk, which creates resources to stimulate people's spiritual imaginations and support their journeys towards liberation. Today, we're talking about her recent book, God is a Black Woman, out from Harper One. So one of the things that comes in towards the second half of your book is your own journey of healing from eating disorder, as well as getting through the narratives of white patriarchy that basically gave you an image and a story that was stifling and in some ways really dangerous to your health. And one of the things that comes out from any kind of recovery is oftentimes what I'd call a kind of 12-step language. And I'm going to paraphrase it here. The God of your understanding becomes important in the first step of any 12-step or the first couple of steps of any 12-step And so when we are talking about God being a black woman, we are making many statements on many levels. But one that needs to be affirmed in this is that this is a way of reclaiming a God of your understanding who could be part of your healing process. And so I'm wondering if you'd be willing to speak a little bit about those connections, about the imagery that we have of God, the way that we sort of— worship something and deify that thing and our own ability to be at home in our bodies and even to heal our bodies.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating because it wasn't until I joined the recovery program for my eating disorders and my compulsive food behaviors that I realized, wow, this God that I claim to worship, I cannot trust this God with this. And part of it is it's that desperation. I like that you said it's the first step where you have to come to this God of your understanding. I think this is the first time I ever really seriously interrogated, who is this God of my understanding? Um, even though I think at the time I was like on the preaching team at my church and I was a theological thinker, it's just we just sort of inherit, like we inherit this God and then we might tweak it a little bit. So with the help of James Cone or Kelly Brown Douglas, I'm like, this God's kind of black or, you know, but still not really fully claiming and saying, this is my God of my understanding. And I think my 30 year history of eating disorder was the one thing in my life that I couldn't beat. It brought me to my knees more than anything else. Usually if I put my mind to it and I resource myself, I can be successful at just about anything that I tried. That's just my personality, but not with it. It was so, and, and maybe in part, cause it had to do with my body. But it just felt so all-encompassing. Everything I had tried had failed. All my discipline had failed. every It was just like, I need help. And that's when I realized, okay, I need to call in an entirely different God. Because the God that I've inherited, that I've tried to revise a little bit, renovate a little bit, at the end of the day, I don't trust that God. I don't even like that God. And that God is actually the cause of all my, all these problems. Like I hate my body and I'm ashamed of who I am because of this God. (laughs) And so it felt incredibly freeing to be part of a spiritual community that gave me license in a womanist way, you know, Hey, find a God that feels good in your body and feels safe in your body and empowers you to be as kind to your body as possible possible. Find that God, which is like a classic womanist pathway to theological truth. And it was so powerful for me in my recovery program to say, yeah, I need a God who is a Black woman, not just a God who listens to me as a Black woman, like maybe a male Black Christ would, or not just a God who sort of gets what I'm doing, which is what the white feminist goddess would do, (laughs) but really a God who walks through this world in a body like mine and knows why it's so hard for me to love my body and has the power to heal me from all of the conditioning that I've inherited about my body and food and work and attraction. And so it was huge. It was so huge. And I don't think I ever could have gotten to that point of desperation without something like an eating disorder where I was just like, Okay, I've tried everything. And the white male God way is to just keep resourcing yourself, just keep getting experts, just keep doing research, just no more things, <laughs> no more things, master yourself. And I had tried that. And I was like, there has to be another way. This was the way of surrender. Well, then if I'm going to surrender, like actually surrender, then this better be a God that I feel comfortable with. <laughs>
0: Of the many things that your book, God is a Black Woman, does so well, you really name and interrogate this image that we have of the white male God. And one of the things that you point out, and again, I'm paraphrasing, so forgive me if I get the wording wrong, but it's the white male God is a God of discipline and a God who is uninterested in our pain, and in fact, if we were to name our pain or our vulnerability, we would immediately fail the discipline that this God is calling us to. One of the things that you just said was that you had come to a point with your own eating disorder where your discipline had failed, but you named this earlier in the conversation that these black Madonnas, one of them you've rechristened the Madonna of the hot mess. And this becomes very apparent throughout your book is that as you are coming to these various locations where these black Madonnas are, you're feeling a reaffirmation almost in that Mr. Rogers language that you're loved for who and what you are, not for what you're doing or what you or your discipline and what i really love about this is that there are several points where that causes your body to go past barriers and literally hug these madonnas and i I, want to hear about transgressing the boundaries to go and hug these (laughs) madonnas what is that like
1: yeah yeah I, i think encountering the black madonnas felt a little bit to me like what it must be for a white man to go into a Marvel movie and see himself as a superhero and then come out. Yeah, I can do this. I belong here. I have the power. Seeing these Black Madonnas felt like encountering a Black female superhero. And so I, as soon as I realized, oh, wait, I'm sacred too. Oh, wait, my voice matters too. Oh, wait, my needs matter too. I was like, I need to go touch that Black Madonna. So there might be a sign telling me that I'm not allowed to touch a Black Madonna. But almost like we joke about how, oh, God, give us the um, confidence of a mediocre white man, you know, where you just walk in and like just take up space. And I just belong here. There is a little bit of that energy that I experienced once I realized I'm sacred too. Yes, there's a sign saying I can't touch this Black Madonna, but I came all the way across the country for this. I walked several hundred miles to see this Black Madonna and she's calling me. And my relationship for her is my body is her body. You know, and so in, this, in this, this desire for a visceral connection, which I think is very matriarchal, you know, I think it, I talk about white male God is like the current iteration of the ancient father sky God, who is this off planet attached God, whereas the sacred black feminine, the black Madonna is imminent. And so I imminently wanted to, my spirituality has been imminent. It just made sense. Well, this is an imminent God. Well, there should be some touches. Whether it's a tree that I'm touching that represents her, or the soil, or rain from the sky, or there's an actual statue right here in front of me, I want to touch. And so I did disregard some some signs a few times. And sometimes I sometimes the signs were bluffing. Sometimes they weren't, <laughs> and I learned that lesson the hard way. <laughs> but I say the majority of the signs they're bluffing. Yeah, I. If you're
0: just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Dr. Christina Cleveland. She's a social psychologist, public theologian, author, and activist. She's the founder and director of the Center for Justice and Renewal, as well as its sister organization, Sacred Folk. Today, we're talking about her recent book, God is a Black Woman. Well, as you're telling these stories about transgressing barriers to come close to this image of someone who identifies with you and with whom you can identify and the healing that comes in that, both in your book and also in this conversation, one of the images that comes to mind is this gospel image again and again of the woman with the issue of blood. And for those who haven't read that that story in a while. For 12 years, she has had a hemorrhage that basically is keeping her from participating in public life. But there's this one day when Jesus is walking through the crowd, and she braves going into the crowd to literally just touch the hem of his garment and to be healed. And he calls her out, and he names her, but he also reframes her back into the community. And so one of the things that really struck me is that as you're Going past these barriers into some danger because at one point the police get called out. You actually begin your book this way. So there is a real risk in doing this touching. Help me to understand what it was that changed in you as you actually embraced the feet or kissed the feet of these various black Madonnas. Help my listeners understand what in you began to heal.
1: Yeah. Well, it's helping me to really connect God with the body. I think because of the the way that I was taught to fast and pray when I was five to God, and so really denying my body as a pathway to spirituality, and then also just the way that we, you know, white male God in the U.S. operates like Father Sky God, detached, off planet, not concerned with humans anything. It's particularly the human body. I love the way the black poet who's now deceased in Tzake Shange says, we need a God who bleeds. Like we need a God who interacts with the world the same way that this woman who had been bleeding for 12 years had a God who's, who has a body and, and allows their body to speak about their experience in this world. And so when I got a chance to touch the black Madonnas, I was able to to heal my own spirituality of body, and to see my body as a sacred source of my theology and of spiritual exploration, and to to do what you know we're invited to do in the New Testament, which is to see our body as the actual temple of God. Which it's so as I went down this path, there's so much in Scripture that supports this. It's just, we have created an entire monster of Christianity that is disconnected from historical Jesus and disconnected from this idea that our body is actually the temple of the Holy Spirit. But touching a Black Madonna helps me to really see her body is sacred. Her body looks just like mine. Therefore, my body is sacred. Therefore, my body really is a temple. My body is a cathedral. I actually don't need to be with her in order to be sacred. I am inherently sacred. But that initial connection helped me to see my own sacredness. And it's kind of like, you know, with attachment theory and little, like little children growing up, as we go and explore the world, we want to go back to that source of safety to remind us of what's true. I think going and touching, these, touching their feet, hugging them r- was helping me to remind myself of what is true about myself, which is that I am sacred. And I had been out wandering in white and all God's world for a long time, like a little toddler, and I was scared. And I was reminded, I needed to be reminded by my mom. It's okay. What you know is true is actually true.
0: This is so helpful and powerful for me on several levels. So, following wisdom that I have gotten from reading James Cone and Kelly Brown Douglas and others that you've named in this conversation, when I'm in social media, when I'm in teaching spaces, I will experiment with reconfiguring my language for God. And so one of the things that I post a lot on Twitter is that God, or in particular Jesus, following Matthew 25, is a black trans woman, because I want to engage the pushback that you're talking about. But I am not necessarily having the bodily connection that you're talking about when I make that kind of statement. And so this, for me, is is helpful to connect some dots that maybe were missing in my approach to this. But I, in my own pushback that I've experienced, in the pushback that I'm sure that you have experienced, there are people that get very uncomfortable with deciding that they have an image of who God has to be or who Jesus has to be, and that any kind of naming otherwise is sort of diverging from the neutral or diverging from the given, and is engaging instead in some kind of political, postmodern, social justice-oriented, fill in the pejorative there. And I'm wanting to get to the point where I no longer am concerned with that kind of pushback. I have a sense that you have stepped away from being concerned with that kind of pushback. You suggest that at several points in your book, God is a Black Woman. But for those who are maybe hearing this for the first time and are maybe fearful of stepping beyond the velvet rope in fear of the alarms that might sound, I'd love to, for you and I to get some space of encouragement for them to begin to experiment with a God that could actually be trusted. Help us to get some language for that.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, something that I've thought about that didn't make it into the book is just how Jesus often said things and did things that elicited that sort of pushback. And Jesus pretty much spoke almost exclusively in like poems, riddles, and like musings, <laughs> and very rarely said anything that was linear and airtight and was consensus, right? Like in, what was but what was interesting about Jesus and the people is that many people were uncomfortable to walk away or get so in their feelings that they couldn't hear. But the people who were able to be present, They're the ones who stuck around for the miracle. Like Jairus in the story that you just shared about the woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years. Jesus stopped everything to give this woman the microphone and let her tell her truth. And I'm sure that was immensely uncomfortable for Jairus because she was probably spewing truth that Jairus didn't like, didn't want to hear, wasn't traditional, wasn't consensus. And if Jairus had just walked off, he never would have gotten his own miracle. Right. So it's the people who've been, who are able to be present to whatever quirky, weird, mysterious thing Jesus is doing in that moment. (laughs) They're the ones who actually get to be part of the miraculous story. And I think when we invite that mystery, when we invite those questions, when we go beyond what we think we know, go beyond what what we think is okay to ask, that's when the magic really happens, at least if you look at the stories of Jesus. And so for people for whom doing what Jesus did is really important, the question is go back and look at what Jesus was really doing, not what they talk about what Jesus was doing. And then, you know, for people who are less concerned about what Jesus was doing, I would just offer that patriarchy wants us to just stick with what, we've been taught. That's exactly how patriarchy maintains control by telling us this is what's true. This is what's okay to ask. This is the kind of pushback that you're able to give. This is the kind of tone you're allowed to use. This is how you need to show up in this space. That's exactly how patriarchy maintains its power. And that's what it did for me for years. I had these questions burning within me since I was a little girl, but I learned very early on, you'll be punished. Either physically or socially, you will be punished if you step out of this path that we've given you. And then all that did for me was just keep me in a prison until my 30s. And I wish in my twenties I had gone on this Black Madonna pilgrimage and had allowed her to transform me. I wanted to, a part of me wanted to, but I wasn't used to I wasn't I had I didn't cultivate trust in that little boy because I had been taught to silence it. And so once we go on the journey, we never want to go back. And then we just have grief for why did it take this grief? Like, why did I, why didn't I listen to me myself? Why didn't I see my body as a source of theological exploration?
0: (laughs) Now that you're on the far side of this theological exploration, and now that you're on the far side of this pilgrimage where you've gone and visited these 18 Black Madonnas and written this book, and now that you've sort of reconnected in a deeper way to a God that you can trust, If you're willing, I'd love to hear a little bit about your healing and where you find yourself right now, both physically and spiritually.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm more connected to my body than I ever had been. And that's a plus. And sometimes it feels like a minus because it's like, yay, I'm connected to my body. And it's, oh, now I feel all the things. (laughs) And being in white male God's world, which is very numb, sometimes feel safer until you develop tools to be with your feelings. So I'm in very much that, almost like a little kid where sometimes I find myself having tantrum because I'm three emotionally and I don't quite know, okay, how do I sit down and name the feeling in my body and what's the deeper need and how can I explicitly ask for that need rather than just being resentful at the people around me for not reading my mind. (laughs) So in some ways I feel like relationally and emotionally I'm a little kid and I'm just learning how to express myself in a healthy way that helps people connect with me. So I'll say that. And it's a joy and it's also a challenge. Spiritually, I love how much this pathway has opened me to let go of even more of tradition, unless it's something that feels good in my body, and to really just use as my ethics, As I'm encountering new ways of being in the world, theologically, spiritually, um, morally, does it open me to love for myself, for the divine, for others? If so, I want to keep going down this path. And so, you know, paths that have been vilified by my Christian tradition, I'm exploring because I want to have as much access transformation as I can. And so I think taking one step down this road has given me freedom to trust my own spiritual authority for myself, which has been really powerful.
0: Well, Dr. Christina Cleveland, this is a book that I have been waiting for because When I teach classes in spirituality, I've wanted to be able to give my students something that is both—doesn't pull its punches theologically, it brings the theology, but it's written in such an accessible manner, and it also speaks from a place— I teach at a Jesuit institution, we're always talking about care for the whole person. This is a book for the whole person. Readers will find themselves invited and welcomed in their vulnerability into the space that you're creating here. I am so grateful that you took the time to write this book, and I'm especially grateful that you took the time to talk about it with me and my listeners today.
1: Thank you. I'm really honored to be part of this conversation, to be a voice in your community. So thank you.
0: We've been speaking today with Dr. Christina Cleveland. She's a social psychologist, public theologian, author, and activist. She's the founder and director of the Center for Justice and Renewal, as well as its sister organization, Sacred Folk, which creates resources to stimulate people's spiritual imaginations and support their journeys toward liberation. Today, we've been talking about her recent book, God is a Black Woman, out recently from Harper One.